minutes the podcast on the events policies and ideas that will shape the world from the european council on foreign relations this is part of our special summer series on european sovereignty which every week will look at a different area of european vulnerability and explain what we can do about it this week i am very happy to be joined by gustav gresser who is a senior policy fellow at ecfr to talk about Europe's dilemmas on hybrid and cyber warfare. Gustav, um, why don't we start with this question about hybrid warfare? It's a term which one's heard a lot of, particularly since the Russian annexation of Crimea a few years ago. But what, what does it actually mean? What does it encompass? Well, sort of the core meaning is that a state uses undisclosed or unattributed assets to pressure another state or another society into doing what it perceives uh, its interest. So that can be basically ample of things um, from from economic pressure to propaganda war that models the the public perception of truth or of facts into a certain case uh, down to unmarked troops uh, or sponsored proxy groups of, of for sort of a proxy war or even sending your own troops without batches and without clear attribution into other countries. So that is a very broad range. That's what we call little green men. Yes, the, the the most famous little green man, yes. But to, to be honest, the Russians are not the only one that doing that. Sort of, if you look in, for example, the Iranians sending uh, the Revolutionary Guard, Guards abroad uh, fighting in other wars, uh, you have the Saudis doing sim- similar stuff. You, you have, especially in the mi- Middle East, uh, the countries crisscrossing each other, sponsoring sort of uh, proxy groups in neighboring countries where you have civil wars. So it's, it's quite a, a widely used um, practice. And, and because everything was, was sort of hybrided after 2014, so we have hybrid debates and we have hybrid trade and we have hybrid cyber, etc. We're actually not very happy about calling it hybrid. But on the other hand, if everybody sort of calls this kind of stuff hybrid, we couldn't, we couldn't uh, resist the trend and, and call our paper as well a, a hybrid. And how does it relate specifically to the idea of European sovereignty and why is Europe particularly vulnerable to this? Well, sovereignty sort of means that the Europeans are in full control of what happens on their soil and that they can make decisions independently without relying on on, on others or without predominantly having to take other positions into account. Uh, that would means you A, have the full awareness of what is happening on your soil and B, you have the means to tackle them. And both uh, European states now, of course, depending on, on about which state we're talking about, uh, have uh, vulnerabilities and weaknesses. And we are actually not fully independent. We are quite dependent, especially on intelligence and cyber intelligence, on the assistance from the United States and on situation awareness on our ground. We have some states like France or the United Kingdom, um, which have geared up on, on this for 
basically because of the terrorism threat and, and sort of have now used the same methods and means to, to also tackle Russia's aversion, uh, the work of intelligence services, etc. But we have many other states who, by, by framework and by capacity, have, have not come to this level or for, for many small states don't even have the chance to come to this level of awareness and, and, and sort of intelligence means that they can commit on their own. Uh, and hence some kind of international assistance, be it by the Americans, be it amongst Europeans themselves and better coordination will be sort of part of the picture how to tackle this. So that's the vulnerabilities and how much of this stuff's actually happening if you think about the different types of threats that you've talked about whether it's you know information warfare interfering in elections cyber attacks how big a problem has it actually been in practice for Europe um, actually it has been more of a problem than we admit one one of sort of the the intro things that unfortunately didn't make it into the paper because it's kind of a murky origin but I've undug a, a 1973 slide on Soviet covert action against NATO and it, when you when you go through it's kind of a pyramid graphic and it starts sort of with bottom line gathering intelligence on the enemy and then it goes up in, in various escalatory steps from gaining sympathizers, proxy organizations uh, up to sort of then sponsoring the proletarian revolution in that country. Uh, but if you look at that slide uh, Basically, you can check all boxes, uh, but, but those who relate to direct warfare and guerrilla warfare and the revolution, that you have some sort of uh, Russian activity in, in, in European member states going on that, that targeted communication, that target uh, public perception, that uh, focus on creating proxy organizations, focus on, uh, that, that create networks of supporters, that um, sort of spoof and spy on critical infrastructure, on key technologies, on, 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 on armed forces, on security services, on uh, critical state data, etc. You, you have basically all of this going on in, in, of course, varying intensity. So the Baltic countries are more vulnerable or are more exposed to, to Russian uh, uh, sort of attempts to, to meddle than Portugal, uh, but you have these activities in all the European countries. And it's, it's uh, also not only the Russians, the Russians are in many, uh, many cases sort of the front runners or the benchmark of, of, of threat because they have the, the boldest and most advanced means and they don't mind of really meddling in European affairs. But if you look at how Turkey plays its proxy organizations in Germany, how Iran tries to intimidate dissidents in Europe, if you look how China uh, uses strategic investment and cyber espionage, you have other countries, but Russia as well, busy in, in, in that field. So there's a the kind of security threat, but also a, co uh, a, a financial cost to this. I mean, roughly how much um, do you think that uh, cyber attacks cost the European economy every year? I, I, haven't, I haven't seen an estimate on that. But uh, it's also, especially when we, when we see that sort of a well-orchestrated cyber spionage campaign as conducted by the Chinese, it's very hard to actually estimate the cost because you have, for once, you have what 
the harm to your enterprises, but the building up of technology competences elsewhere, the, the R&D fund that your competitors uh, save by employing a spionage means, the competition that results from that on global markets, it, it, it can be pretty large. I think we used a figure of 400 billion in the... Um uh in our which i think came from the european commission actually but i will uh we should double check the attribution and put a link up on the website to to the report that we used in our um in our wraparound study so we talked about some of the different elements there's election interference there's the information warfare there's cyber attacks and so is there something particularly in the nature of, of Europe and of the European Union which makes um, it more vulnerable than, than other countries to these sorts of attacks? Well, there's one thing that is sort of peculiar to Europe and to the EU as a kind of <laughs> hybrid thing in being. Because we have a common market, we have a common currency, or almost a common currency. Uh, we have Schengen, so we can travel free across the Schengen area. We can, we can have free transactions. Uh, we can offer services from one country to the other. We have much less control of our inner European boundaries. Uh, but on the other hand, you have very different uh, legal frameworks and very different ways of law enforcement across Europe. You have countries who, like France, uh, have a very capable counterintelligence service, who have a very assertive uh, financial police. Uh, and then you have countries, for example, like Austria, which has a very weak counterintelligence service, very weak legal framework. and But still, it is sort of... Uh, possible to um, to have a residence in countries like Austria, or for example, if you if you go into the IT business, Ireland is is very permissive, uh, and you have a lot of a lot of strange companies that reside in Ireland, which are um, the British accuse them of of being uh, being actually just brass plate enterprises to cover uh, cyber espionage. Uh, and not in France itself or not in the UK itself, but still act in the UK via, via the internet to send personal across, etc. Um, so, so here the EU has a specific vulnerability that unlike the US, where the US, you know, it's one legal entity and you have the F FBI all over the United States and you can't, there is no sort of Californian legal loophole that will allow Silicon Valley to do something um, uh, that is illegal in the rest of the country uh, that is uh, sort of peculiar to Europe and that, that of course, uh, Russia and other actors make use of. Uh, they try to, to bring their assets or to have a logistical base in, in the countries that are quite vulnerable, that have not yet made up their mind about how to, how to deal with these threats and issues, how to react policy-wise, and then act from there uh, in other countries. And that is something that basically requires the European Union, as European Union as such, to become a policy actor in the field, both in the cyber field, but also to ramp up its, its sort of domestic standards on, on issues that, that go beyond cyber, to have sort of legal minimum standards, for example, on, on what espionage is. Um, uh, to have to have minimum standards for cyber security, to have a common policy on 
on data security, etc. So uh, here we are. We are not yet aware on how vulnerable we are because we are so closely connected. So why don't we go through some of the recommendations which you put in the paper? You say that the first task is is about getting Europe's house in order, and you have these different fronts. So you have a kind of cyber cyber security front, an intelligence front, yeah. um, a diplomatic front. You talk about confrontation and also about dialogue with different players. Should we go through each of those different areas? Yeah. So what, what can Europe do to put its house in order on the cybersecurity front? Well, on cybersecurity, sort of the basis is laid. There is a, a, a body that deals with it, uh, in theory at least, the European Network uh, and Internet Security Agency. But it's for the time being, uh, the agency is more of a think tank than than a real uh, watchdog or or legislative body. So if you if you could beef up the organization to not only write papers on recommendation but also to to, to um, uh, bother the Commission with uh, with initiatives on legislation, that would be great. Uh, if you add cyber forensic capabilities to analyze cyber threats, to analyze incidents that have happened. And then if you, if you network them with the Ministry of Interiors in and the, the, relative, the respective cyber commands in the member states, so that once you have a, a, a cyber incident that basically on a European level, you start an ex post examination, what happens, what do we learn from it, uh, how did it occur, are there legal steps to be taken, are there administrative steps to be taken, uh, what is the vulnerability we have missed so far, in order not to sort of make every 27 or 28 member states have to learn all bloody lessons by themselves. Right. Then, of course, on cyber, we will, for, for technological reasons, we will be quite dependent on the French and the British services for a lot of things from analysis to bringing the technical means uh, to bear. But uh, the, the sharing this information and, and politically trust, this comes then to the dialogue and when, for example, when, when the Brits come up with a certain analysis of an incident, that this sort of the, the, the critical information is quickly shared across the continent, and then diplomatically, we don't sort of try to just hedge against well, our special relationship with actor X Y Z will be in threat, but rather sort of to really, in one voice, back up the the affected country and and go behind them. Should we move to the intelligence front? What do you think should happen there? Um, intelligence is much more complicated and much more... Um, it's trickier because uh, intelligence sort of is a classic domain of state sovereignty. And, and so far, the member states have been very reluctant to, to Europeanize uh, the, the issue. Um, still... Sort of given given the interconnectedness of Europe, we uh, we have some things we can do. For example, if you if you look the role Europol played in combating organized crime, if we would add counterintelligence to their to their portfolio, it would make their operations much easier. I mean, they have basically tackled some issues in counterintelligence when they 
when they tackle organized crime that is used by uh, intelligence agencies uh, as as a kind of forefront organization. Uh, but but to share information through Europol and to coordinate actions against spy networks that operate across many European countries is is an absolute minimum. Then, as I mentioned before, to set the legal standards, what is subversion, what is hostile intelligence in Austria, for example, my home country, intelligence or is only a, or spying is only a crime if it's directed against the Austrian state as such. If you, for example, sit in Austria and you spy against Germany, it's not a crime in a proper sense. We try to interpret the law that we say, well, sort of the EU is sort of part of our legal framework and it's part of the operative environment the Austrian government works in. So if you spy against the EU member state, that is some sort of spying against us as well, but it's a very shaky legal ground. And this kind of hybridness in our legal framework is of course used by by not only the Russians, but other intelligence agencies as well to sort of have a base in Vienna and operate from there. And and it's causing frictions with other countries. And unfortunately, Austria is not the only country that has kind of loopholes, but and these loopholes need, need to be closed and tightened. And then we can, of course, strengthen our, our cooperation on fronts that are not only against intelligence, Malang intelligence operations, but also against organized crime. This is uh, transparency uh, on finances, on on the real estate market, uh, better cooperation and coordination of our financial police and, and financial market oversight institutions, common standards on money laundering uh, and on on illicit enrichment. Uh, that would be crucial because it's not only the mafia that uses this kind of sort of secret bank accounts, um, undeclared flats uh, as as a basis for operation. It's intelligence as well. It, it many many classical intelligence operations that particularly the Russians pull the rest on a very dense network of of brass plate organizations and uh, covered uh, hard assets in Europe that you could actually close down if we had a common legal framework on that. The kind of final front you talk about is the diplomatic front, and you talked a bit about that earlier, but in the paper you uh, talk interestingly about how a lot of the member states are split. Some countries seem to prefer calling out countries that are attacking them and, and shaming them. Other countries prefer to go for cyber dialogues. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yes, so we have been talking to officials from various countries how they dealt with incidents and uh, the experience is is very different. However, I have to say that there is probably no one one recipe fits it all thing. So for example, on attribution, when you start to call out a state uh, that, for example, this cyber attack was perpetrated by state X, it it can be good uh, if you want to alert your society, if you, if you know that your, your political system, the public opinion, um, is, is not yet fully aware of the threat. Uh, if, if you have, for example, already told this, this malign power that, uh, that you have been observing this kind of threat and that they didn't stop, that, um, and you think that if you don't call them out, it will only get worse. 
On the other hand, of course, it's tricky because you then also reveal the capacity to really follow and to, to examine their, their operations. So you, uh, usually you need to give your, your population a kind of reasoning why you think that, for example, this entity was linked to the GRU and that, of course, or, or to any other intelligence services. And that sort of warns the, the hostile actor what in the next operation not to do and how, how the other services track them. Cyber dialogue, for example, I mean, there is cyber dialogue is a kind of a catchphrase. So some, some countries uh, have, have very, like France, for example, have a very robust and frank cyber dialogue with Russia. So they really confront them with what they did and they, they, uh, they use these also to air threats. If you don't stop making XYZ, we will start to retaliate. Other Countries like, for example, Portugal, they have cyber dialogue, but there's not much knowledge about how technical this cyber dialogue is. It's not connected to at least implicit threats. So it's a very soft tool and there is, there is much criticism about it that this is more surrendering than, than actually uh, dealing with the threat. Ultimately, it will need the combination of all of that. You can't attribute every attack for, for not compromising what you sort of what you see and what not you see. Uh, you will you will need some kind of reach out and cyber dialogue because you want to have uh, you want to hedge against sort of a total cyber wild west where everybody is attacking everybody out of retaliation and retaliation against the retaliation. Uh, on the other hand and, and this is sort of a European problem, if you don't uh, have any offensive cyber tool, if you never threaten retaliation, if you never threaten sanctions, if you never threaten sanctions in non-cyber related issues as a retaliation for cyber acts, like for example to sanction or to freeze assets of people involved in cyber attacks, if you or banning companies that are providing services or infrastructure to uh, these intelligence services that, that penetrate your, your data systems, etc., you will not be taken seriously uh, and you don't have any pressure tool to make the others stop that. Uh, and, and here the Europeans should not have sort of a, a, a rosy picture about the future. If you look now on environment, it's not only the Russians. Uh, uh, increasingly, it's, it's also private security companies that work as kind of uh, cyber mercenaries for various Middle Eastern governments of various North African governments. The, the Israelis are very robust. The Chinese are, of course, a, a coming a superpower in, in, in many cyber, cyber issues. Uh, we, we're, we're living uh, not, not right in a cyber white west, uh, wild west, but very close to a cyber wild west scenario. And uh, in such a cyber wild west, if you decide to be the only guy that doesn't walk around with a cult, you might be the very first victim. And do you think that part of the problem is that these things are all being done on a national level? Or, I mean, is the solution with all these dialogues to have an alignment between the different national dialogues or should there be some kind of EU dialogue? There is a problem that, for example, for the French, for, for the Brits, to some extent also for the Germans... Uh, it's okay to have a national cyber dialogue with other countries uh, because they have a powerful domestic cyber 
agency and uh, they have for themselves tools to retaliate. And the, the Baltic countries, for example, they have powerful cyber, cyber defense tools uh, and they pool sort of their cyber defense tools within the Baltic states and they cooperate amongst Nordic countries because they need sort of critical mass in terms of um, observation capability, but also if you want to have diplomatic backing for any kind of uh, incident uh, prevention or, or th sort of th telling the Russians, you know, we're serious about it. But for many small countries, the problem is that uh, having a cyber dialogue with Russia would be an enormously asymmetric affair, uh, both in terms of cyber capabilities, but then also in terms of retaliatory power. I mean, you cannot expect Belgium or Austria to threaten Russia with retaliation if they don't seize certain kinds of disinformation or cyber attacks, etc., so here, some kind of pooling, either in the framework of the European Union, if, for example, uh, we would uh, develop some sort of uh, uh, common cyber policy, uh, cyber sanctions uh, policy, especially, would be pref would be preferable. Uh, some kind of common ground or, or common policy within NATO to have a, a common set of, of cyber weapons there might also be conceivable. Uh, that, that all needs to be hammered out. Uh, I just want to say that a, a purely national solution might, might be okay for the bigger countries, but it's not something the entire EU28 or 27 will, will live with happily ever after. Great. Well, thank you very much, Gustav. It's been fascinating talking to you. If you are interested in finding out more about this, head straight to our website at www.ecfr.eu and click on the button on European sovereignty, which will lead you to all the different papers, including the paper by Nico Popescu and Gustav Gresso on Europe's dilemmas on hybrid and cyber warfare. If you've enjoyed listening to us, you should also make sure that you tell your friends, colleagues, family, everyone you know about it through writing about it on your social media page or on ours and giving us a rating on the platform that you've used to listen to this podcast. But for now, from Gustav Gresser and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch and the podcasts are currently being edited by Arbo Ribbing. <laughs> <laughs>